Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I am, as usual, Gary Bain, and I'm joined once more by the enigma that is Peter Hart. Enigma, I am. Morning, enigma. Morning. Now, today, Pete, uh, listeners will be pleased to know that we're... At uh, last. <laughs> we're returning to our series of podcasts about uh, Hague and Hague's war, and uh, we've we've... Reached 1917 now. So his war didn't end in 1916. <laughs> and it's taken us about as long as it took in the actual war. Yeah, it is a year since our last episode. Yes. <laughs> so, so today's podcast... Did we podcast, forget, Gary? <laughs> today's podcast is Hague's War 1917. So what have we covered about Hague so far? Because it's part of your thing that uh, generals aren't... Uh, don't spring fully formed as 60-year-olds onto the world. They uh, they have a background. So what have we covered with Haig? Yeah, I mean, briefly, as we mentioned, this is one of a series of podcasts, so everybody would have listened to the others. Oh, of course they would, yeah. Uh, about Haig at war. Now, it started with his time as a captain in the Sudan, which really sort of uh, captured you, didn't it? And uh, you thoroughly enjoyed that. I did. And we moved through his time as a staff officer and brigade equivalent commander in the Boer War, where he did quite well. He did well, yeah. Uh, his time in senior staff capacities helping rebuild the British Army and the Territorial Force. Yeah. Uh, and then we followed his progress from Corps Commander in 1914, Army Commander in 1915, and the first great trial as Commander-in-Chief as his armies endured the trauma of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing is absolutely certain at the start of 1917. What's that, Gary? Haig was still a convinced Westerner. He wasn't really interested in all the sideshows. He wasn't. And this is what he said. If our resources are concentrated in France to the fullest possible extent, the British armies are capable and can be relied on to effect great results this summer. Results which will make final victory more assured. Assured. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and which may even bring it within reach this year. To fail, to, to fail in concentrating our resources in the Western theatre or to divert them from it would be most dangerous. It might lead to the collapse of France. It would certainly encourage Germany. Hmm. Now, we've only got one quote today, Pete. You had one quote. One quote. Did I bugger it up? Yes. Now... The Allies approached 1917 with a considerable degree of confidence. Lacking the benefit of hindsight, the Allied leaders had no idea that the revolution would first cripple and then remove their Russian ally from the war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all they knew was that uh, the Somme and Verdun campaigns must have been horrendous experiences for the German army. Uh, while the, uh, the we talked about this with Nikolai, the uh, Russian Brusilov offensive uh, caused a lot of additional pressure on the Eastern Front. So what is there? The, the, what, uh, there's a hope, isn't there? What's that? What's their hope? Well, what do they hope? Well, you could 
you could say it was a conviction even that the German army must be approaching the end of its tether. Ever since the war had begun, the German army had been outnumbered and the male population of military age was a finite resource. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just military problems, is it? Because there's they're straightened economic conditions. Uh, what's that caused? Well, the, the Royal Naval Blockade certainly doesn't bloody help. The exorbitant cost of war, I mean... We've only just finished paying for the Great War uh, a couple of few years ago. Uh, foodstuffs and clothes had been—they uh, both had to be rationed in Germany. It, it's quite tough. So, what do you think the overall outlook is for for uh, for the well, Ge- the German High Command? Certainly thought that it was bleak. They had no option but to stand on the defensive. So passive then? Well. It doesn't mean they're passive, does it? it it's... Are the Germans ever passive? No, I mean, they've conducted a they... root and branch reasse- reassessment of their defensive tactics in view of the increasing evidence that both the Brits, sorry, the British, yes, I wondered who and the French had begun to master the existing tactical configuration for a successful attack. Yeah, and actually I'd reverse that because the French actually were were, 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 were ahead. They, they were the ones who'd... They'd made a lot of progress in 15, whereas we were much slower than that. Yeah, instead of a linear system... They so be- this is the Germans. So, what are the, so yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, so instead of a linear system, they began to look at the possibility of deeper defensive zones with different functions. So that would be the forward zone, and that, that's going to that's gonna be pounded to buggery by the, the shells of the... It's a technical term. It is. Uh, the Allied field artillery will pound that to bits, if you like. So what are they going to do with that? How are they going to hold it? Well, they're going to hold it lightly, but with the reduced garrisons protected in reinforced concrete pillboxes from where they would rely on the crossfire of their machine guns and great swathes of barbed wire to cover the gaps between them. So that's a big change. Uh, uh, So what does that mean about the forward troops? Well... They're not necessarily expected to fight to the last man, but they're granted the freedom to fall back to carry on the fight from a less hopeless situation. And the other thing is, our favourite thing, is the counter-attack divisions are kept well back, out of the range of field artillery. And what would they? what's their role? It's to counter-attack, but when? Well, they're ready to attack just as the Allied assaulting troops were tiring and uh, no longer supported by the guns. We've said this before, the guns can't reach all the way forward can they now this is a this is one of my i think it's one of our underlying points we make time and time and time again the bloody listeners must be absolutely fed up of it what is that point gary well it it's the problem when you're relying on a learning curve the germans had one as well you've described it i get confused by this but you've described it as two big dippers rising and falling as advances uh, each impacted on the other. Yeah, so you invent the tank, you go up, the other lot invent uh, pillboxes, you go down. Uh, So it's sort of impact. You're not fighting the war on your own, are you? There is another side and what they do impacts on you. I've now got a really strange vision in my head of fighting a war on your own. (laughs) Well, the Conservative government. (laughs) (laughs) A coordinating conference with Pete and Gary. (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. Um, Now, a coordinating conference held at Chantilly... Chantilly, ladies and gentlemen... Big bopper. I'm not old enough. On the 15th of November 1916, General Joseph Joffre, the French commander-in-chief, in his usual dominant role, was determined to maintain the pressure on the Germans over the winter before launching more great French and British spring offensives on either side of the Somme battlefields. Yeah, and don't forget, Gary, that uh, there are also plans for a follow-up major British summer offensive in Flanders. That's so. Uh, but somebody else is under pressure. It's not just the Germans, is it? There's some. There's another country that's under pressure. Who could that be, Gary? Do you mean the French? I do. I do. Um, so what happens? Uh, what goes? What, what? That seems good plans, but it all goes. Well, Joffre seemed to be in control, but within a month, the ground disappeared from beneath his feet. Why? Well, I've always been confused by this, but its its reputation, once so bright after the Battle of the Marne, had been diminished by his inability to achieve victory 
in his costly offences. Well, especially in 15. I mean, 15 is a terrible year for the French and it didn't get any better in, in 16, did it? No, and on the 12th of December 1916, he was dismissed. Now, was did they dismiss him without any idea of a replacement? Or was there a new man standing there, proud and erect? No, there was certainly a star rising. His replacement was General Robert Nouvelle, who had built a reputation during the later stages of the Dun, and who was confident, some would say overconfident, that he could deliver victory on a larger stage. So he takes over, and we'll hear a bit more about him. Uh, now, who else is under a bit of strain? Well, you mean the British, I, well, I presume, yeah. once more. And, uh, of course, the Russians, but we'll not, we've done that. Uh, I'm presuming so, rather a lot today. You are presuming a lot today. Now, the Asquith Coalition You're had actually fallen. presumptuous. The Asquith Coalition had fallen in December 1916. The new Prime Minister was the Liberal... You're a Liberal... David Lloyd George, who managed to form another coalition based on support from the uh, Conservative Party. How typical that is of the Liberals. (laughs) Now, in order to win the Conservative support, he promised not to interfere in the strategic direction of the war. Does he stick to that? Yeah, he, uh, he nevertheless remained a firm devotee of Easterner operations that left him well adrift of his professional advisors. Absolutely. So, so Robertson and Haig, for a start. Um, so uh, do, do his Easterner schemes have any, uh, any merit, do you think? No, uh, they were entirely devoid of military logic. And when he uh, promulgated his vague ideas for an offensive in Italy at the Allied Conference in Rome in January 1917, they were crushed by a combination of the British and French High Command. Who it's, else supposed it? <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> the Italians themselves, they took a dim view of being thrust forward in such a prominent role. Well, they quite capable. I mean, the, the Italian performance of the Great War is one of just constant battering their heads on the Zonzo. But uh, yes. Um, now, what did Haig want? Uh, what was Haig's plan? What did he want to do? Do you not know anything? Well, I'd like to ask you. keep asking me. Oh, you just seem so knowledgeable. Well, Haig, he'd have liked more consideration of his long-standing plans for a major offensive in the Eeps area. But given Lloyd Jewell's aversion to the prospect, more British casualties in the... uh, Maya. (laughs) Yeah. More British casualties in the Maya of the Western Front. This plan was also discarded. So what's the last plan standing, if you like? Well, it's Nivelle, isn't it? Yeah, and it was put forward by Nivelle, who planned a stupendous, stupendous, Pete, offensive in April 1970 against the Shamanda Dam Ridge behind the Ain River, while the British distracted attention and pinned German Yoo-hoo! reserves with a Yoo-hoo! separate offensive at Arras. Yeah, and that's we covered that in our air offensive Arras. A lot, there was a lot of chat about the, the diversion and everything. Now, what was Nivelle's method, methodology? I think it lacks a certain subtlety. It's basically a huge accumulation of artillery, uh, an utterly crushing bombardment, and under that, uh, two armies, two French armies would smash their way through the German lines before a third army would go through the breach created it's an ambitious plan uh he promised success within 48 hours and that's a crucial point i think which uh, um what did haig think of it well he had concerns over the requirements on the bef to take over the section of line stretching south from the somme to the uh, wies river which was further down to the south so he's worried about the additional commitment the British were undertaking of more line to hold, yeah? He is, but in the end, he's more than willing to allow the French to resume the main burden of the Allied effort. Yeah. Now, when it came to dealing with British and French politicians, Nivelle was eloquent, far more persuasive than the taciturn and reserve generals they'd up to that point encountered. Yeah, uh, there's nothing more dangerous than a, an eloquent general, I sometimes feel. Uh, <laughs> I quite like him to be taciturn and, and able to express themselves clearly. Yeah, that's the uh, eloquent in the room. <laughs> See what I did there? That's brilliant. Now, Nivelle's visions of swift, certain success, they, they sort of entranced Lloyd George, yeah. who saw a chance to avoid another prolonged bloodbath such as the Somme. Is this uh, another case of a politician going for the easy option? 
Well, Nivelle's plan was accepted, so it must be it, and it was uh, uh, the centrepiece of Allied efforts in 1917. Now, uh, that's not all, though, is it? Because Lloyd George then does something absolutely bloody terrible, as far as I'm concerned, um, uh, and betrays both, he betrays everybody, in, in my view, uh, even his Conservative allies. What does he do? Well, yeah, I mean, he he ambushes his own generals at the Joint Anglo-French Conference, which was held at Calais on the 26th of February 1970. He's a bit of a conspirator, isn't he? Well, he's a politician, and by a careful prior liaison with French generals and politicians, he manoeuvred to place Haig directly under the command of Nivelle. I'll bet Haig was pleased. Oh, he laughed. Laughed and laughed. So what happens? Well, the row that followed was only calmed by a compromise proposed by the War Cabinet Secretary, Maurice Hankey. Now, this play... Uh, no, Hankey knew Haig well, actually, because they'd worked very closely together on the army reforms. Now, this placed Haig under Neville only for the duration of the offensive and allowed him the right of appeal to the British government. Um, under what if he circuit? considered oh, right, yeah. the BEF to be in real danger. Uh, Haig, uh, so is uh, uh, ameliorated? <laughs> no, no, he was still furious, oh. and rightly so. <laughs> yeah. Increasingly, the British political and military establishments were finding themselves at loggerheads. This was a dangerous state of affairs. And it would endure for the rest of the war. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, the Battle of Arras, what does that demonstrate? Because I think it demonstrates something very clearly, and we've talked about this in the Air series, but let's mention it now. Well, that British offensive tactics were maturing fast. So what happens? The First Army, commanded by General Sir Henry Horne, would capture Vimy Ridge, rising up three miles northeast of the city of Arras. Ah. While the Third Army, which was commanded by General Sir Edmund Allenby, the bull, would drive forward towards the hill of Monchy le Pro. Yeah, the tens of that is to break through the main German defensive lines uh, across the Scarp River and allowing a thrust south uh, then towards Croissel and Bullecourt. Um, an impressive artillery uh, uh, barrage, wasn't it? Um, uh, um, so uh, did they secure an artillery uh, dominance, do you think? Well, some 2,816 British guns were facing only 1,014 German guns. I'd say that's uh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's over two to one. Now, now, there was an interesting debate there over the format of the bombardment, and that throws... It, it is interesting because it continues for, for, for the rest of the year. Uh, uh, so what, what, are, what are the options about how, how you carry out the opening bombardment? Well, General Sir Edmund Allenby and his artillery advisors had favoured a short 48-hour bombardment. But Haig had demurred, pointing out that Although the new 106 fuses offered hope of efficiently clearing the German barbed wire in the near future, there were simply not enough of them at that point in time. Therefore, something had to clear the wire and a long bombardment was the only way then available. Yeah, the 106 fuses are the instantaneous ones that go off if they touch anything and, and they're good for clearing wire. Um, now, uh, I can think of another solution. Uh, uh, tanks. Why not tanks? Why, 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 why couldn't they use tanks to clear the wire away? That's what they're good at. Well, production had not kept up with demand from the front, so only 80 were available for the attack and hence their role would be combined to taking out troublesome nests of German strong points. Bloody production. I suppose, I mean, you've got to make choices with production, haven't you? And, yeah, absolutely. And, and they, they chose... The, well, there you go. Now, the final plans uh, feature a four-day bombardment. They trenches the German trenches. The drenches the trenches. Drenches the trenches. Uh, the supporting gun batteries. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of shells. Then as the infantry go over the top, what do you get then? What do you get then, Gary? A thunderous creeping barrage which would create a wall of shells mixing high explosives, shrapnel and smoke shells to chaperone them safely and over more the than German one lines. line uh, creeping by. I mean, they're getting much more complex, aren't they? Uh, they've they've learnt a lot, haven't they, since 1914? The, the BEF. Uh, uh, so, what? Give, give me some ideas. Let, let's go through. Let, let's brainstorm. Uh, you go first. This could be very short. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you think of anything? They now grasp the importance of suppressing the ability of German infantry and artillery to fire as the infantry attacked. So you've got to stop them from putting their heads up to poke their, you know, right, okay. Um, One other point I'd make is that the tens and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of new recruits had learnt their trade. The gun did, in particular, 
of the Royal Artillery because that's a skilled business. You can't just produce a good gunner. Um, the gun detachments, the gun layers, the NCOs, the officers, they've all mastered the uh, basic gunnery. Uh, they've got efficient batteries that are capable of these increasingly sophisticated, nay, complex, Gary, complex bombardments. Well, you mean you can't just cock it up a bit? Yeah, well, that's uh, exactly what exactly. you can't do, yeah. yeah. Now, the guns themselves, they're now plentiful, and there were vast numbers of medium and heavy artillery pieces joining the masses of ordinary ordinary 18-pounder and 4.5-inch howitzer field artillery. Yeah, and as and technology and science, this is what they cock it up a bit. Again, we'll get back to that. It, 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 they've got a greater understanding of the technology, of the science, of the, of the mechanics of a shell in flight uh, and, and the measurable adjustments caused by different meteorological... Oh, I can't normally say that. Uh, conditions. Um, so what does that mean? If, if, if they get a grasp of the thing, what does that improve? Well, accuracy was improving and the advent, as you mentioned, of the 106 fuse meant that shells would burst instantaneously. This is on, the barbed wire clearing. On the slightest contact. Yeah. And as you say, that makes clearing barbed wire a great deal simpler. Uh, now, you mentioned another thing that has attracted my attention strangely. There's something you mentioned we haven't mentioned much before, smoke shells. Yeah, they're now routinely incorporated into the barrages to try and mask the attacking infantry from the German defenders. Any other types of shell you might want to mention uh, playing an increasing role? Gas shells. Now, they're a key part of the barrages. They were less visually dramatic than the release of clouds of gas from cylinders... But the shells far easier to deploy and much more predictable in their effects. Absolutely, and uh, uh, we 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 don't want to bang on about this, but the linked tasks of the Royal Flying Corps, photographic reconnaissance, artillery observation, allow targets to be identified and then destroyed by indirect fire from the batteries. If you don't know that after listening to the Arras uh, Air War, then there's something wrong with your listener. In addition, new techniques of flash spotting and sound ranging also assisted in locating Can the exact position sound of German batteries. Me, yeah? No. Excellent. <laughs> I can't explain it. <laughs> right. Um, now, are there any complications uh, to the plans? Because there are. Well, you, you're particularly referring to the plans for Arras, and that was the uh, German decision to withdraw to the Hindenburg line, which they'd built far behind the existing positions on the Somme front. That retreat starts in earnest on the 14th of March, and uh, that means that they're, they're abandoning the tactically and uh, su suspect positions stretching from Arras down to the Aisne, uh, right in the French area. But, but, but uh, do they hold up the attack? Do they postpone it? No, nope, they... it goes ahead anyway. Oh, right. On 9th of April, 1917, a date we've mentioned a number of times. Oh, we have mentioned that date. The Battle of Arras began promisingly as the Canadians seized Vimy Ridge while the Third Army punched almost through to Moshi le Pro. In some ways, just as dramatic, uh, although often forgotten. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, now, then something goes wrong. Uh, uh, the words got mittens are on every German belt buckle, it seems. Uh, We've got mittens too. We've got mittens too. You have to laugh or cry. And the crying comes here because of the weather. What goes wrong with the weather? Well, terrible wintry weather helps slow down attempts to capitalise on, uh, on the moment. Yeah. By the time they'd made renewed full-fledged assaults, the Germans were ready and utter failure resulted. So what you get is the fighting just degenerates into the, well, I call it the depressing secondary stage that blights so many German, uh, sorry, British offensives. So the Somme, we had this, I think of August. Even at Nerve Chapelle, the secondary stage would be where it all falls apart. Oh, dear, oh, dear. But the British had certainly performed their diversionary role for Nivelle's great offensive at Chamander Dans. Oh, they had, Which yeah. was scheduled to start on the 16th of April. Now... What happens with the Vals Offensive? Well, in many ways, it's not really a disaster per se, to use a posh expression. Um, why, 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 why is it seen as a disaster? Well, because it, it the, is a disaster. Yeah. yeah. We mentioned, you know, his confidence and how he was and, and the damaging hyperbole of, of, hyperbole of everything Gary. that he'd promised. It's <laughs> well, a hyperbole. And he failed to division, to, to deliver. I'm glad I put that word in. In the aftermath of that failure, the French troops began to mutiny. Yes, and this is serious, isn't it? Um, so, so what happens? Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, very early on, Haig's immediate, almost immediately released from Nivelle's command. And, uh, and what happens to Nivelle's command? 
Well, the more cautious figure of General Philippe Pétain uh, replaced Nivelle as the French commander-in-chief. So what does Pétain do when he comes in? Well, he saw the summer of 1917 as a period of healing, of rebuilding, but the French army was not yet truly broken. Yes, people could go overboard on this, can't they? It's still there, it's still big, it's still powerful, it's just suffering a bit. Yeah, and under his uh, careful stewardship, it would regain much of its martial ardour. Uh, within a matter of matter of months. So that means Haig's now freed from Nivelle's uh, leadership, but uh, he's got not much option for his uh, for what he's got to do because he's got an immediate priority that's caused by what's happening to the French. What's that? Re- what is it? Well, it's evident that in the first instance, the British have got to fight on Arras to help gain the French army time to recuperate. So the continuation of Arras is not really Haig's choice. It's forced on him. And what does it result in? It results in bloody disaster. Uh, why do I say that? Well, and, and expanded casualty lists uh, with a series of unprepared offensives that rendered the daily British casualty list the highest for any battle in the war. Yeah, the average. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a bad... It goes awfully bad. Um, so, uh, But his attention's turning to, to Epes, to Flanders, his long-cherished idea for a great Flanders offensive. Now, we've got to look at this. Um, what are the reasons why he wanted the major British offensive to be in Flanders, at Epes in particular? Why? Why, Gary? Why? Well, as is well known, its proximity to the Channel ports was vital for logistical reasons. These could not be considered entirely secure until the Germans had been driven back. And that that applies to the Haysbrook railway junctions as well, which are also not far behind. Uh, But you can go two ways in a battle. What's the other side? Well, it's proximity to the German control ports of Ostend and Zeebrugge, which had become German naval bases, from which destroyers, submarines and mine layers could emerge into the English Channel. Nah, that well, sounds bad to me. Yes, and the uh, submarine menace was especially grave as hundreds of thousands of tonnes of Allied shipping were being sunk every month to the consternation of the Lord, uh, of Lord Jellicoe. Jellicoe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our hero from Jutland, if you like, uh, who's now having a tough time at the Admiralty. But that's not all. What else is just behind the German uh, lines? The important railway junction town of Roulers, that was just five miles beyond the Passchendaele Ridge. So they can't re- retreat 20 or 30 miles this time, can they, like they could on the side? Got to stand and fight. Uh, there's something else that, that I think people so often underestimate. Why? The, 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 the sheer bloody awkwardness, the inconvenience, the, the stupidity of the shape of the British tactical lines, uh, the, 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 the salient. Uh, what? Do, well, why? Why, well, why do they keep it? Logically, the British should have evacuated the salient and thus straightened their line along tactically superior positions. But logic didn't allow for the emotional significance of the blood-soaked ground. The drip, drip, drip of casualties in the salient was a constant drain on British manpower. And just to explain for our listeners, basically, if you're in a salient, you're being shot at from three sides. In front of you, your right-hand side and your left-hand side. There's only behind you, you're not being shot at. And then the Royal Artillery can drop short, (laughs) as we mentioned in our episode, Gunners. Before any serious operations to clear the Epes salient could begin, it was necessary to clear the Germans back from their positions on the heights. Heights, Gary? Yes. (laughs) You could put that in inverted commas, really, couldn't you? Uh, The heights of the Mezzine Ridge to the immediate south. Now, preparations here had been underway for uh, for a long time. They'd been carried out by General Sir Hubert Plumer of the Second Army. And what had he done? What what were they doing? In particular, there's something dramatic they're doing. There was a series of deep-driven tunnels that they'd been burrowing under the ridge. Now, already the preparations had been accelerated in anticipation of the summer attacks originally planned to capitalise on the supposed success of the Nivelle offensive. Now, the planning process for uh, for, for the Battle of Messines, it, it's a bit... Uh, it, it, uh, well, and Epes, uh, all, all of this, the third Epes as offensive as a whole, but Messines included, the, there's a big problem, tactical problem for the British that goes on throughout the offensive. What is that? Well, you've got to choose between the bite-and-hold style plan with restrictive, uh, restricted objectives and the natural desire to maximise possible gains to capitalise on the enormous allocation of resources represented by such an offensive. Hmm. See, in a more aggress- aggressive approach than that offered by Plumer, 
Haig selected General Sir Hubert Goff to command the main Epes offensive by 5th Army, while Plumer commanded the 2nd Army assault on Mezzine Ridge. So we'll do that first, obviously, because that comes first. Um, so what, 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 I think the Messines plans that Plumer, they're, they're another high point in the development of Bite and Hold. Uh, there'll be a four day barrage followed by the detonation of 21 mines, although I think only 19 go off. Uh, some million pounds of high explosives were underneath the uh, key German defensive positions all along the, the, the Messines Ridge. Uh, now, how far does he intend to go, do you think? Well, originally, he'd only planned an advance of 1,500 yards. But Haig, not unnaturally, in view of the almost incalculable expenditure of valuable military resources wanted to attempt both the seizure of the German second line at the back of the ridge and the Oosterwern line on the rearward slopes. Altogether, this would entail a total advance of around about 3,000 yards. Now, Plumer's got nine assault divisions, three more as a reserve. He's got 2,266 guns, 1,510 of which were field artillery, and the rest were heavy artillery. So how many of that is heavy artillery, Gary? The rest. <laughs> That's right. Now their job <laughs> was to take on the German batteries the and, dis- and destroy so, yeah. reinforced concrete stop- strong points. Strong points. Strong points. In the preliminary bombardment, three million five hundred sixty-one thousand five hundred thirty shells were fired. <laughs> so not uh, three million five hundred sixty-one thousand uh, five hundred thirty-one, eh? No, precision with Pete and Gary. Bollocks. Um, now, the, 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 the creeping barrages are getting incredibly complex. Uh, they're, they're going backwards and forwards. They're uh, mixed with barrage uh, based on a sequence of identified strong points. They're, they're, they're moving. They're, it's just getting very, very comple- complex. And what, what happens to the creeping barrage when the troops have got their objective? Well, they then settle as a, as a standing barrage just ahead of the new Why? lines. Why, Gary? Well, that's designed to protect them from the inevitable German counterattacks. So they'd have to go through a line of shells? Absolutely. The infantry would be accompanied in their attack by some 72 tanks, as we mentioned earlier, while throughout the attack, the uh, massed Vickers machine guns of the machine gun corps would be firing over their heads to spray millions... How many, Gary? Millions. Can we have precision in this? Uh, 1,427,383... No, that's a lot more millions. ...bullets <laughs> over the target areas. You may have gone a bit low there. Inaccuracy with Pete, Pete and Gary. Gary. <laughs> uh, but that, that's... It. I mean, you, sh- you shoot the bullet and you've just got a rain of bullets landing behind the German lines on, on key points. It's fabulous. But the eye-catching innovation was the sheer size of the mines. The explosions at the Battle of Mezines began on the 7th of June, 1917. Earth-shattering. And they were, literally. Blimey. Uh, so the infantry and tanks sweep forward uh, over the shattered German lines, the front lines. Uh, the, 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 they, they take the forward crest positions, and they actually manage to take uh, most of the Oosterwern line, although the later stages cause more casualties. And sometimes people blame Haig for this, and, and I'm not sure they're not right to blame Haig for this. Uh, but on the other hand, he wanted to maximise the, the gains. It, it's the eternal the thing. Um, oh. With the Mazine Ridge under British control, the way was open for Goff's Fifth Army assault on that's, East. That's the main uh, uh, affair, isn't it? Yeah. Salient. It sounded then like I'd said he was attacking Eeps because you interrupted me. But it was on the Eeps salient. Oh, I see. You don't want to attack Eeps. That no. would be a terrible That would disaster. be terrible. <laughs> Haig had originally intended to swiftly follow up the capture of Machine Ridge with the Eeps offensive, but the delays multiplied. The delays multiplied. I'm thinking of the uh, the Elizabeth line. <laughs> Crossrails used to be I had nothing to do with that, as you were, well Were know. there any delays in that, Gary? I Speaking didn't work of the on TFL. That. I didn't work on it. Well, you should have worked on it, Gary, and then it would have However, been on time. At, uh, the Eeps offensive, the delays multiplied, reflecting the logistical difficulties of waging war, which required thousands of guns and millions of shells to be amassed in the muddy ground around the Eeps saving. Think of a gigantic puddle with mud in it. Yeah. The infantry, too, had to be moved up to the lines. Not only moved up, something else has to be done to the infantry. Training and planning had to be perfected, and all this took time. Speaking of time, we'll take a short break. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The British plans for Third Apes featured the usual tensions over the question of advancing in stages... Oh, Gary, we've had this. ...or attempting to maximise the initial gains to include the second third lines. <sighs> well, what, where does this... I mean, some British senior commanders felt the opportunity had missed on the first day of the Battle of Arras. I'm not so sure they were, because it snowed and the weather was awful and I'm not... But, you know... Um, <sighs> But what's the problem of including deeper German uh, lines or defences in the first attacks? What's the problem in the original barrage? Well, the impact might be diluted and total failure ensue. So less shells would fall on the front line or front defences. The depth of the German defensive system also meant that delays were inevitable because the field artillery's got to be moved forward at each stage. Because they're range, they've gone out of range. Absolutely. Germans are fiendishly clever, Gary. In the end, Haig resolved to maximise gains within the overall context of a staged advance, not therefore an attempt to secure an actual breakthrough. Now, the plans, they they emphasise the importance of the artillery. That's the British way, isn't it, Gary? Yeah. The 5th and 2nd Armies, they amassed 3,091 guns. We're being precise again. (laughs) Uh, Twice as many as the Germans had in the sector. How long is this part? It's going to last for ages. <laughs> yes, the bombardment would last for 15 days, otherwise known as ages, followed by a thunderous creeping barrage to accompany the attacking infantry across no man's land. They'd also have tanks with them, but uh, there's a problem with tanks, uh, Deeps. Well, they're restricted by the difficult ground conditions. Difficult. Yes. <laughs> When the infantry attacked at 0350 on the 31st of July 1917... Up early that day, then. ...they made considerable progress, especially on the left, although they failed in front of the intensively defended Gullivelt Plateau. Yeah, that's an absolute disaster in front of that. And then, of course, the German attacks, they're based on counterattacks. They have their fresh divisions held back... uh, they're in the where? Where are they? They're held in the folds in the ground behind Gellervelt Plateau and Passchendaele Ridge. What do they do? They drive in onto the, at the flanks of the British advance and and they force back the increasingly uh, exhausted British troops. And uh, they they don't lose all the ground, the British, but they it, it sort of takes the shine off what they've achieved on the left. It does. The cost, however, was very high, with the British suffering loss, suffering losses of thirty one thousand four hundred ninety. German casualties seem to have been around 30,000, of which 6,000 were prisoners. What's happening is that Goff's willingness to, to, to try and maximise gains on the first day had, as indeed some had warned before the battle, rendered his troops vulnerable to German counterattacks. Uh, they'd, they'd overstretched themselves, hadn't they? And what they'd run beyond the cover that their field artillery in particular could provide. Uh, so. Uh, so so, uh, so, what happens next? Well, Haig may have practised a form of contingency planning, but it's also certainly true that the outcome of the first day's fighting was at the lower end of the spectrum that was acceptable. If it was acceptable at all, yeah. There was another unforeseen problem. On the first day of the battle, it had begun to rain. Ah, now, yeah. it had poured down, poured down, for most of August. There were only three dry days in the whole of that month. Three? And critics of Haig say, well, that's perfectly normal for August in Belgium. Well, it is it bollocks normal for... Uh, it, it should be drier than that. And in an area where drainage was already suspect... Why? On a battlefield where millions 
we've established millions, of shells had ripped apart the drains and broken down the banks of streams to flood great swathes of the landscape. Now, so what happens that August? When, when they can resume, and it takes a while to resume, there's a depressing pattern of desperate, unimaginative attacks, uh, crushing German counterattacks, uh, and uh, just sort of miasma, Gary, of despair afflicts the whole British campaign in Flanders. The gains are minimal, the casualties excruciating, and there's a bunch of near-futile assaults launched on 10th of August, 16th of August, and 22nd of August. It's a bad bloody month for British generalship, as it was on the Somme. Gough was floundering, unable to get a grip on the battle, hamstrung by factors that he could not control, but also by his failure to concentrate his resources, to grasp the nettle of uh, Gillevolt Plateau. So, so who's going to sort this out? Well, Haig's got to intervene, hasn't he, in the end? And does he? He does. So what does he do? Further progress was almost impossible without the reduction of the series of German lines and interlinked fortifications... There's about nine lines, I think. I can't remember what it is. It's about nine or ten lines across the Gellervelt Plateau. Yeah, if the uh, thruster, Goff, and his Fifth Army had proved incapable of cracking this difficult nut, then Haig was quite prepared to revert to Pluma, who'd already so recently demonstrated his mastery of bite-and-hold tactics at Mazine. I find this interesting, because you might have, you might say Haig made a mistake by appointing Goff, but it does show a willingness to respond to the situation in... in in changing his mind and putting uh, Pluma back in charge. No, it wasn't immediate because Pluma needed time to prepare, so oh, Goff no. and the Fifth Army would have to struggle on into September. Does it go well? well? It led to a further series of small-scale actions which could never achieve any worthwhile objectives and repeated many of the mistakes of the dreadful middle section on, on of the Somme fighting. Now, who else is suffering in this uh, phase of the fighting? Oh, to mention, we haven't mentioned, the French are attacking on our left as well. Uh, we apologise for not going into detail. The French, in fact, had done very well on the first day. But we're, we're, we're concentrating on the British and on Haig. So, uh, so who else is suffering? Well, for all the British confusion, the German army is also suffering. For them, the improvements in British offensive tactics were ominous. Yeah, there, there are songs of... Uh, now, uh, let's look at Pluma. So what does Pluma plan for his second army? That they'd advance in four bounds of about 1,500 yards to take the Gellivolt Plateau, each followed by six days lull to allow for the proper preparation of the next step. Then, and only then, would an attack be launched on the main Passchendaele Ridge. So the overall plan is pretty simple. Uh, so you, sh you should be able to understand and explain it to me. Each attack would uh, simply aim to seize the German forward defensive zone, then swiftly consolidate, thereby effectively inviting German counterattacks against well-prepared infantry, backed up, as we've mentioned, by massed machine guns and the full strength of the artillery. Because they'd only take uh, what was within the range of the field artillery. So the whole of the field artillery could concentrate a barrage in front of them. Ooh. Now, the, the other thing about Plumer is he's a lucky bastard, isn't he? And he is a lucky bastard. Uh, why is he lucky? Why do I say Why do I say he's a lucky bastard? Because September saw the onset of dry, sunny weather and the ground began to dry out. That was indeed a great advantage to the Royal Artillery. Yeah, just moving shells, moving guns. And of course, the, gun, the guns become more stable platforms. So what do we happen. mean by success? Uh, well, uh, well, well uh, the, 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 the battles that were launched. Let's look at the battles. Uh, 20th, uh, 20th of September, Battle of the Men in Road. Great success. Uh, 26th of September, six days later, notice, Battle of Polygon Wood. Another success. Yeah. So what do the Germans try and do? Well, here they fall into a bit of a trap because they try and strengthen the front-line zone. They, put, they, they, they notice the British are just taking the front-line zone. So they try and put more troops, more machine guns in uh, to, uh, to sort of hold it. Um, um, oh, well, what happens next then? Well, they also decide to delay counterattacks until they could be properly organised with the appropriate artillery support. So that they're not attacking. So yet. they're not attacking, no. So Plumer, who's encouraged by Haig, uh, he hoped that the Germans might be about to crack. This is another theme we want to develop. And he ordered the next Second Army assault on the Broodsinder Ridge. Zonnebeek. Uh, Zonnebeek. <laughs> it's Zonnebeek. It's got a letter. Zonnebeek Spur and Gravenstaffel Spur 
whilst the Fifth Army moved on Pole Capel. Thanks, Pete. Excellent reading. So what results is the 4th of October, the Battle of Brudsin's Ridge. Uh, what's that? Well, that could be described as a fantastic success. That's right. What happens to those extra Germans who are in the front line positions? Well, they attempt to reinforce them to prevent the British taking them, uh, and it merely led to more casualties under the barrage. Well, why is that? Well, numbers don't stop shells, do yeah, But as many in you like in the front. If you have 100 people in this room, 100 will get killed. If there's two in this room... Two will get killed if a shell goes off at it. And it's the same. Plumer's bite and hole tactics certainly achieved their aim in capturing the fortress that was the Gullivelt Plateau. Now, I'm, 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 now, this is where I feel we need to say something about bite and hole because the, the, there's, it's, a bit, it's not quite the answer to everything that some people seem to think, is it? No, there were some drawbacks which uh, were becoming apparent at this time. So let's go through them, Pete. What do well, we think? Well, firstly, I would say that you can get a better idea of what bite and hold is if you call it attritional. Basically, it's just grinding away. So, yeah, let's have a look. Well, if you only go a one and a, one and a half thousand yards each time, a limited advance, how many guns are you going to take? How many German guns? Are you going to overrun the German gun line? Well, you're never going to do that, are you? And and, and you, you, you're not going to capture any sort of significant numbers. What of does that mean? Guns. Well, that meant that the threat posed by German artillery remained relatively constant. And that means... That Every battle needed the same tremendous attention to detail and like thorough counter-battery bombardment. Attention to detail. Yes. Now, also... The casualties suffered were very, very painful, about 20,000 a thrust. And, and this, again, bite and hold is not cheap, is it? It, it's, it, it may be marginally in favour of the BEF, but it's a, it's a horrendously painful method of going forward a mile at a time. Um, yeah, and, and as a method of warfare, it really only had relevance in circumstances such as at Eeps, where the Germans couldn't retreat without exposing important tactical and strategical objectives. So it was ideal there, but it wouldn't work everywhere. Well, I used to, I remember Bryn Hammond used to make a point about this. He said, if you go forward a mile at a time, they'd have just about reached Berlin around about 2007. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, you never take the gut. You've got to do the same again every time. Uh, there's another, there's another problem as we move from September into October. What's that problem that looms ahead of us? Uh, I want you to think Game of Thrones here, Gary. Game of Thrones. Not, not a bunch of white zombies coming out of the things. Time's what? running out for the BEF. Winter. Winter was coming. <sighs> You're Jon Snow. Haig still believed that the Germans were ripe for collapse, and that was just one more hammer blow which could shatter their resistance. He thought, he, well, why does he think that? He thinks that because he thinks the Germans had a chance of a great victory in back in 1914, uh, October, November, during the First Battle of Ypres. He thought one more blow would have broken through the overstretched British lines. He was probably wrong because the French were reinforcing them. We always think of it as just, but we've talked about this before. It wasn't just British lines and in, in the first Battle of Reefs, but he didn't want to make the same mistake. He felt, he felt. One more blow. One more one blow. One more blow. Yeah. Now, Apes became a hell on earth for the men condemned to fight there, and that dreadful experience has come to symbolise the whole of the war. Yeah, it's raining, it's muddy, uh, the uh, the dryness has stopped. So what happens? 9th of October, you know, tell me how these battles go. The Battle of Pol Capel, what's that like? Terrible slaughter. 12th of October, first Battle of Passchendaele. Uh, another 13,000 casualties. Is it a success, though? Well, not really, no. It's a complete failure. 26th of October, the Second Battle of Passchendaele. How does that go? Well, that was where the Canadian Corps made a very small advance of just about some 500 yards along the ridge. Now, by this time, they're talking about localised tactical objectives. Haig's just wanting to complete the capture of Passchendaele Ridge by this time. They want to winter on a strong defensive line along the Passchendaele Ridge. Um, is that logical? And logically, he'd have been better to withdraw right back to the uh, Pilkelm Gellervelt Ridge line. Hang on, that's just about that's just in that's, front of where they started. Yes, it would have been far easier to defend from German attacks. Why? Why you say that? Why? It would leave the de uh, the devastated and flooded battlefield of the Steenbeck 
uh, steam beak, sorry, in front rather than behind the front line. It would also greatly lessen the severity of the salient that allowed the Germans to fire from the three semi-flatter, semi-flatter. as you mentioned. Right. Uh, why can't they do that? And I, I know I can see why they can't do it, and I actually agree that they could not do this. Why not? Emotionally and politically, it was impossible. It was unthinkable to give up the ground that had uh, so many had sacrificed their lives to win. Now, by the beginning of November, the great Third Eps Offensive, uh, which is now it becomes known as Passchendaele, uh, which is what the, the end phase is. Uh, it's really just the narrow front of the Canadian Corps. They're trying to get up onto Passchendaele Ridge. Uh, it's just a desperate, and, and they do really well. I think you've got to admire the the Curry's and uh, you know, the, the the Arthur Curry's uh, command skills. And on the sixth of November, they they finally managed to capture the remnants of Passchendaele Village. Is it a lovely village worth capturing by that time, or is it a bunch of brick dust? It's just a bunch of brick dust by this time. The situation was uh, at that time was complicated by the collapse of the Italian army in the face of the Caporetto offensive launched by the Austrian army on the 24th of October. Indeed, Haig had been forced to send two of his divisions to help stem, stem the tide on the 28th of October. Now, overall, the cost of Third Eps, the, the whole of the offensive, it's atrocious. 275,000 casualties and the German losses, I don't think we know, but they're about something like 200,000. Uh, it, it's dreadful. Um, but yeah. this is alliance warfare. And in the recent past, the French and Russians had sacrificed legions of men as part of the combined effort of winning the war. Now, in 1917... They had required the British to step up to the plate. It's plate? What, what, is this some sort of basketball analogy you're using? If Britain abandoned their allies, they risked losing everything. Yeah. You, you know, you, you've got to play your part. Uh, is there any illustration of this? Well, there is. There's a very obvious one happening in November 1917, which is... The collapse of Russia. That allowed the Germans to concentrate their forces on the Western Front in 1918. So if you desert your... If you don't... Even if you do support your allies, they could still collapse. But if you do desert them, they'll definitely collapse. So now, um, the, I think there are... There, there are it, uh, is it a benefit? It's more a process than a benefit. What, what has we seen the Third Battle of Ypres uh, do? What has the BF done during the battle? They developed a murderously efficient method of making small-scale gains based on the raw power of the guns and subverting, at least in part, the German defence in depth. It was a method of fighting based on restricting all ambition to the achievement of small advance of less than a mile. Yeah, and as we've said, the war can't really be won that way. Uh, bite and hold is just a never-ending torment. It's, it's, it's a, you need a better way, but there is a better way being developed, even during 1917, away from the front. And and, and that centres on the... Const- it, it, it's the staff... This is the bit of Haig as the commander-in-chief, yeah, as the chief executive. Yeah, you often make the point about the role of the staff, and, and, and it's, it's quite clear here that they are crucial to the development. So and, what are they doing? Well, the constant after-action reports which developed best practice... As disseminated in the SS... SS? That's a bit unfortunate. ...stationary service pamphlets. That's less dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. The developments of new levels of training and specialist schools. Based on those pamphlets, based on the best practice. Yeah, what else? The willing acceptance and incorporation into battle plans of new weapons, such as tanks... Aircraft. Gas shells. Smoke shells. And massed Vickers guns. That's not all, though, Gary. You're restricting yourself there. What what about the massed distribution of light machine guns amongst the infantry battalions? Yeah, not only those. Stokes mortars and rifle grenades as well. So the infantry platoon has got its own artillery, if you like. Now, above all, the new artillery techniques of pre-registration and development such as the 106 Fuse brought the potential of surprise back to the Western Why Front. Why do I say that? And yeah. I didn't. You said it. Well, because... <laughs> well, <laughs> because you haven't got to range in, for example. You haven't got to... to so you could just crash out the barrage and take the barbed wire out. Absolutely. Firing from the map. Firing from the map. And... Um, uh, and the tanks can flatten the wire if there's any left. To get Well, the tanks will flatten the wire. And not forgetting the boots on the ground, the development of flexible infantry tactics based on the section 
with small strings of men advancing rather Sausages. than these long lines of men advancing in waves as on the side. And what would we call this if we were going to give this whole set of tactics a name? Well, an all-arms battle. Absolutely. Uh, now, one signpost for the future is the Battle of Cambrai, because 1917 isn't over, Gary, just because the, you know, um, the 20th of November... Uh, uh, what is the Battle of Cambrai? Is it a battle? It is, but you know, it, it has the characteristics of something else. Well, you've a, described it as a uh, opportunistic large-scale raid. I think I copied that off Bryn Hammond in his masterly book, The Battle of Cambrai, which is still available, uh, listeners. He's my chum. He used to be my boss at work. He was very tolerant, man. You've gone off at a tangent again. Uh, let's go through this. So the, the Eats offensive had effectively denuded the rest of the Western Front of adequate levels of German troops. And this had given a chance for a great experiment. Yeah, and the ground conditions at uh, Cambrai are much better than at Eeps, which is just hopeless for bloody tanks. Uh, it, it, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not broken up. It, it's good. It's solid ground. And the tanks would be able to smash through the German barbed wire and, and break down the uh, Hindenburg Line defences. But that's not all. You mentioned it. Let's, let's hammer this home. Because it's not just tanks, Cambrai, is it? I still think that this is more important. What's more important? The new artillery techniques of calibration of the guns and pre-registration were employed to the full to allow the bombardment to crash out with devastating force as the tanks and infantry surged forward. You can't hammer this home enough. That means... The absence of a preliminary bombardment for days before the attack would, it was hoped, ensure surprise. Now, great hopes... Uh, are invested in this uh, Cambrai attack. Uh, and at six o'clock uh, in the morning on the 20th of November, the British barrage crashes down on the German lines and, and artillery batteries. Then the creeping barrages uh, precede the advance of the infantry and the tanks at uh, 0620. So just 20 minutes later, that's all. And in the end, the front line system of the Hindenburg line was overrun to a depth of, guess how much, Gary? Have a guess. Go on, guess, guess, guess. Three to four miles. That's what it says. Yeah, exactly. So that's not a guess, is it? A splendid achievement, equal to the first day at Arras. But on the other hand... What goes wrong? Well, nothing could go wrong, surely. Well, the cavalry was unable to deploy forward to any effect. Yeah. The German second-line system between the Masniers and Beauvoir remained intact. The key bridge across the canal had been destroyed. Which means that they can't get the tanks across for a start. And something else... The key, well, Bourlon Ridge is really important. Uh, the, there isn't a map of this. Just look at you know, it. And who, who's holding it? Are we holding it? Are the British holding it? Are the British holding it? Remains firmly in German hands. The British had suffered some 4,000 casualties and of around 378 tanks, some 179 had been put out of action or broken down. Yeah, tanks at this stage and for the rest of the war are essentially a one-use weapon. Yes, you, you might get two uses if you're lucky, but half of them, you lose a lot of them, don't you? They, they just break down. The offensive carries on, but uh, both sides are in a lot more familiar territory, aren't they? It's a scenario they've played out, well, countless times before. So what happens? Well, the Germans rush forward uh, reinforcements while the British struggled to regain any sort of momentum. There was now no surprise. and uh, The guns had been moved forward and their firing lost precision. The number of tanks was vastly depleted, as we mentioned, and the infantry were tiring and there were no real reserves available. So by the time the operations staggered to a close on 27th of November, all the British had succeed was uh, creating what they created. A uh, highly vulnerable salient. A bit like uh, the Eep salient. <laughs> there would be a sting in the tail for the British, though. What eh? could that be? Surely the Germans have gone beddy buys for the... Uh... The German high command were aware of the opportunities oh. presented by the British Cambrai salient. They counterattacked, well, what a surprise, on the 30th of November. Now, they've been learning new tricks as well, haven't they? They've they got their own tactical innovations based on their experiences at Verdun on the Eastern Front. And, and they'd melded together best practice uh, from their own experiences. But who else had they learned from? Well, what, the, what they'd seen uh, in their British and French opponents. Yeah, of course. So what they, they, they have, and there's many things in common, aren't there? So there's an opening, crushing opening barrage, which targets the batteries, the gun batteries, the headquarters, the, uh, and it aims to cut communications, isolating the, uh, the, 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 the front line in the Cambrai salient. Uh, what else? 
Mortars absolutely pummeled the front lines to <laughs> great <laughs> effect. <laughs> yeah. And then the really new exciting thing uh, that people bang on about endlessly, although the French, oh, have been, what you mean. the French have been doing this before, but carry on. The infantry advance uh, trialled uh, the, uh, the uh, stormtrooper tactics that were still being refined. So what, what, do, what, do st- what are stormtrooper tactics? Well, they'd move uh, the first wave. That would move forward in sections using light machine guns, grenades, and flamethrowers. So they pass between strong points. They they wouldn't take out. They would they they infiltrate. Yeah, they're sort of feeling their way through the cracks in the British defences. They're, they're seeking out the vulnerable artillery batteries and headquarters. And uh, dragging the, behind them were the mobile minenwerfers. Even some 77mm guns would be... Uh, so they'd have some close support coming up. Uh, and and uh, and then there'd be su- subsequent waves. And, of course, above them, they have swarms of low-flying aircraft, which would strafe the British front lines. Uh, that's enough of going on about their tactics, I think. So, uh, But they're coming. And uh, are they successful? That's enough about going on about their tactics. Yeah, bugger them. <laughs> well, in places... The Germans break through to the British gun line. Ah! The Third Army awoke that morning to near disaster. But uh, what happens? Well, we fling in everything to stem the, uh, the the tide. What what can we fling? Well, reserve divisions, obviously. What else? Uh, low flying strafing aircraft. I say strafing. You say strafing. You say strafing. The nice day strafing. Uh, the remnants of the tanks that hadn't yet been withdrawn from the battlefield. Even cavalry. Even cavalry yeah. sent forward, yeah. In the end, it was just about enough. Just about as enough. As they pulled back in relatively good order to a stronger defensive line, uh, which held. Now, for all the tactical advances, no one's yet really got the idea of how to break through an opponent's line. They can break into their lines, but they haven't. they can't break through the lines. Would you say that's right? No, I think that's fair. Well, what, what's the butcher's bill for the Cambrai altogether? Third Army lost some 44,207 casualties and the Germans approximately hmm. 41,000. So neither side gets the objectives they want, uh, but both did enough to deny their enemies success. So it's a usual, uh, you know, uh, honour shared, I'd say. Both sides trialled their tactics. At uh, When would they, those tactics come to centre stage, do you think? Well, 1918. Yeah. Now, so, in summary... Oh, are we summarising? We're summarising. Uh, the Flanders Offensive, Third Eats, Passchendaele, whatever you choose to call it, uh, was a heart-rending tragedy. Hundreds of thousands of men had their lives terminated or ruined for the sake of a few square miles of battered mud. Yeah, the, but there were real objectives. It's, it's not to say that Haig, his generals, his staff were stupid or donkeys. It, that's going too far. But they're oh, not lions led by donkeys. Oh, no. Oh, overall, their reasoning was high, valid. But with hindsight, we can see that they're probably wrong. Uh, the whole, what is the whole Flanders offensive based on? Well, it's a faulty premise that Germany would soon collapse. Yeah. The and, last uh, reasonable hopes raised by the capture of Brunsinder on the 4th of October were crushed by the dreadful failure of the Battle of Polkapel on the 12th of October. Well, I think at that point, the offensive should probably have been suspended. Uh, but then, then they'd have been in no man's land, literally, between the... They wouldn't have taken the the Passchendaele Ridge. So um, history tells us it wasn't, and thousands died in the attacks that followed. Yeah, and uh, oh, I, I, we we call this needless sacrifices for useless ground. And I, I remember in the uh, Passchendaele book I wrote, we call it sacrificial ground. Uh, and it's ground they take all that to get the solid defensive line on the Passchendaele Ridge. Um, and then what happens in the German Spring Offensive of 1918? It's all abandoned. Just like that, in a day. And then it's all recaptured later in 1918 in a day. Uh, in the end, I don't think that uh, the 30s uh, offensive is Haig's finest hour. I don't know whether you agree with me or not. I don't think it's as bad as some people say. I understand why things have gone wrong, but it's not his finest hour, is it? No, but again, I think he learns from it. And there's things going on in the background, the development of the all-arms battle, which would bring victory in 1918. So there is hope for the future. When are we planning to do the uh, Hague's War 1918? Probably in about a year, based on past experience. Yes. Well, thank you for listening. 
And uh, for those of you who haven't rushed out and bought it yet... Surely they all have. You can uh, still get our, our book, Laugh or Cry, the British Army on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918, at all good bookstores. Or, alternatively, some not very good ones. Yeah, those are my favourites, actually. Some of them don't even pay tax. Bastards. Cheers, Cheers. Pete. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?